Down the mighty Mississippi We took a little bacon and we took a little beans And we caught the bloody British in a town in New Orleans We fired our guns and the British kept a coming There wasn't as many as there was a This is History and Music I'm Scott and I'm here with Sean and Joseph um, Of the Battle Rattle podcast um, Welcome Thank you Thank you Yeah Um so yeah, this is history music where we dissect lyrics of popular songs um, whose subject is has a historical context. And um, based on the the intro of that song, the first uh, bit of lyrics, I think you can tell there's there's quite a bit of history in there. So we're excited to get into it. But um, but before we get too far into it, how's it going, Sean? I'm doing good, man. I. Uh... I like this song. The song is not Dixie, even though that's the actual intro to the song. But um, no, things are good. It's uh, getting warmer outside. No more snow. So, you know, just feeling happy. Yep. Had to turn on the AC and all that. Yeah. Yep. I, uh, yeah, I actually opened my windows today. It was awesome. Nice. And like I said earlier, we're, we're joined by Joe. How's it going, Joe? It's incredible. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, um, it's a pleasure. Uh, I, I'm just meeting Joe for the first time, but but Sean and Joe, I think, go back, um, know, know each other from uh, previous lives, I suppose, I guess. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, it, it sounds like you recently heard about the podcast and, and wanted to talk about some history. Um, so uh, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Joe? Well, I'm, uh, I live in Dallas, Texas, or, or outside of Dallas, Texas, and I'm an, an attorney by day and uh, a, a podcaster by night myself, <laughs> and, and so that's, that's where this whole thing uh, came, uh, came along. I have a podcast that talks about military history, so um, and today's episode is a, uh, <clears throat> the, the interest uh, for me has has a lot to do with uh, the fact that this is a song I grew up hearing, and uh, later learned that it has virtually no relation to historical fact. And so I thought that was <laughs> it's it's really fun, and so I'm looking forward to talking about it here. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. You also you also moonlight as a uh, youth soccer coach, and that's, that's right. actually that's right. Yeah. yeah. So so I I know you because we attended the same church congregation for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. We were in the same ward um, in Texas uh, for several years, um, but you also were my my son uh, Brecken, my son's soccer coach for a couple of years as well, and led them to victory several times. And uh, you're you're still affectionately known in my house as Coach Joe. Ah, well, that's that's great. Uh, for those who don't know, Brecken is a fantastic soccer player and has some wheels. I'm not sure where he gets the wheels from, but the the kid is very fast. He is. I used to be fast. <laughs> I put on some weight well, recently. It's a little hard to get moving now, but <laughs> well, he gets it from somewhere, and he's he's fantastic. Awesome. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I think he has a natural he has a a a natural trick up his sleeve of the fact that he's left handed. And so because he's a lefty, not everyone's expecting that because he kicks with his left foot. Yeah, that, that, that's always not a guarantee, but it's a really good way to get on any team. Every coach wants someone out on the left wing with the yeah. left foot. 
Yep, exactly. So awesome. Well, Joe, welcome to the welcome to the program, man. It's great to have you. I'm glad. I know this has been a long time coming because I asked you about this like a while ago. And then I think yeah. we kind of we kind of fell off the radar for a little bit and did a bunch of other episodes. And then kind of out of the blue, I'm like, hey, Joe, you're next, man, on the schedule. You ready? <laughs> so yeah. we kind of we well, yeah. had to do some some prep prep for this one. Um, but before we get into that, so I know you kind of mentioned, you know, how I know you and kind of, you know, what, what brought you on the show. Um, can you give us a little bit of a background on, on like, what, what did you grow up listening to musically and what do you listen to now, you know, when you're not prepping for a history music podcast? Um, no. So, so music was huge uh, growing up in, in our household. My dad, interestingly, was not musical whatsoever in, in terms of like, he couldn't sing, no, didn't play any instruments but he loved music and uh, you know, he would set up uh, a huge, you know, one of those cabinet stereos and have uh, his vinyl record player there. And he collected all kinds of vinyls and uh, we'd sit there and listen to music and he'd tell us, Hey, this is who this is. This is who buddy Holly is. And this is who uh, Flaco Jimenez is. It just, uh, all, all these things and by marriage we have a relation to johnny cash so he was of course really really popular in the house and so we grew up listening primarily to um music of his vintage which would have been uh, his favorite artist was bob dylan so we heard a lot of bob dylan and growing up um you know a lot of the folksy um jefferson airplane of course, the Beatles, but um, the Doors, uh, th- that's that's what we grew up uh, hearing that. And interestingly, side by side, listening to country western, because that's what my grandfather always listened to. So and we had a huge collection of Merle Haggard, and Hank Williams Jr. And, and just and of course, Johnny Cash, everything Johnny Cash. And so um it was, uh, that was listening to music was, was my, um, my upbringing, uh, very important to, to him. But, uh, nowadays, man, I, I feel like I don't, I don't listen to, uh, to music like I used to, but when I do listen to music, I, I like a lot of different things and I know everybody says that. Um, but, uh, I, I for the longest time, you know, since I grew up right outside of Austin and, uh, I was very much into the local punk underground uh, early emo scene and uh, <laughs> nice. just really under underground uh, I, you know, I probably went to over a hundred live shows before graduating high school. Um, so that music is just, I, I basically uh, when I went on my mission kind of like throws music in time for me for the most part. And I still, I still listen to all that stuff. I, I try to branch out and try to stuff, but it doesn't speak to me the same way that stuff does. <laughs> well, you'll fit in here pretty well here. That's uh that's awesome. Yeah, well, I know, and Joe, it's funny because when I first met you, I remember that was like the first thing that we chatted about was like, oh wait, you're into these guys and these guys and these guys. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've listened to them because that was exactly the same for me. Like I, I, I played a little bit of music, but I was more like going to shows. And so same kind of thing. I would go to like all kinds of shows all over like the Sacramento area in California. But then when I went on my yeah. mission. You know, for those that that don't know, when you go on a mission, most of the time you can't listen to that quote unquote uh worldly music so it's usually just hymns and stuff so you do kind of come back after two years being abroad or on a mission like 
like, okay, so hey, is so-and-so still popular? Are they still singing? Yeah. You know, because like you, you really don't know and you haven't listened to them in two years and you get back into it, like, wow, man, this is like this is still good. <laughs> you know, it's a party, yeah. a party that never really grows up, I guess. Yeah, that same for me. I mean, I will always go back to those those same artists. And so uh, and I and I'm okay with that. I, I uh used to be embarrassed, like, oh yeah, I haven't grown up since 2002 or whatever, but now I'm like, yeah, whatever. That's my music. It speaks to me. You know, music of the punk music of the '90s and the very early 2000s. That that's my jam. Yeah. Nice. If I want to put on Dropkick Murphys at 40, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> so, that's great. Awesome. Awesome. Yep. So, so do you do you do you? Uh, so it sounds like you're still listening to the to the the classics, if you will, uh, that we were just talking yeah. about. Um, have you when when you do branch out? Do you have a, a preference outside the punk? genre that you like to listen to yeah probably country music um that that's uh, so in, in country music and, and occasionally some some rap which is just yeah it doesn't work i i know doesn't seem to make sense but i really like um uh texas country music especially like tejano it, like influenced uh texas country music and, and things like that so well and which, thing- honestly a, a lot with what my dad would listen to so I kind of grew up listening to that and, and it just st- sticks with me. I like that. Well, and it's interesting to qualify, or I shouldn't, I shouldn't say it's interesting. It's important to qualify that because I learned very quickly when I got to Texas that what I thought was country is not really country yeah. at all. And there are some very strong, deep-seated opinions about what is and is not country music, especially in Texas. Yeah. And yeah. so um, I, I still, uh, I remember one time I was actually at work when I was in Dallas and I had this coworker girl who was, she was from Louisiana, but had lived in Texas for a long time. And uh, she was roughly my age. So she was like, you know, like a, a late, late stage millennial, you know, late uh, Gen X or early Gen X, if you are no late Gen X, early millennial. Um, and I remember her when she heard that I was from California, she goes, oh, so uh, you're from California. So do like Californians listen to a lot of the beach boys? And I was like, well, I guess sort of like maybe my <laughs> grandparents did or my dad, you know, like, cause it's, it's old music. Right. And like the beach boys are good, but it's not like people are still playing the beach boys going to the beach right now, like in current year, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I tried to explain that to her and I was like, well, uh, like, like, I mean, do Texans do that? Do you still listen to country music from, you know, do you still listen to George Jones? And she goes, yeah, straight faced. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's normal. Yeah. And I was like, oh. I'm sorry, I stand corrected. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, and George Strait. George Strait was was big um, when I was a kid. He's big now. He's still big to yeah. now, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I went to a George Strait concert not too long ago, um, and I mean, that's yeah. I, I mean, well, it it, it kind of makes sense. I don't think we grew up. <laughs> it it kind of makes sense because uh, the the music is inherently about like uh, tradition and stuff um that's that's a big theme in the in the music and so it makes sense that it that it has staying power and uh yeah Absolutely. yeah well, and, and you'll have you'll have people like luke bryan you know who like is more like pop mm-hmm. country and yeah. for people that aren't in the south or in the country that seems like it's country because in california they'll play on country stations you know and be like oh yeah this is country sure. but then you get somewhere like texas like no dude this guy's an insult to country you know but well, King, it- King george though that's country well, that's yeah, it's, it's probably like yeah. saying Avril Lavigne is punk or something, you know? Yeah, 
Like, yeah, I guess it's the same kind of, yeah, it makes sense. Like, I'm not knocking it. Yeah. I'm just, it's, it's important for people that are non-Texans to understand that when you say country music, yeah. Joe, this is what you're talking about. You're talking about like Buck Rogers and like, or not Buck yeah. Rogers, sorry, Buck yeah. Owens, not Buck Rogers, Buck Owens. And there, there are like a, a lot of um, regional or, or local groups that are really, really popular here that don't get a lot of uh, play outside of texas and and so yeah you say country music somebody outside of texas you know that's what they know and 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 i think we we know that too here but it's also something different so yeah that's awesome man yeah um so like the the song that we're discussing that we heard in the intro there is the battle of new orleans and i'll qualify that by saying it's the johnny horton version we might get into that a little bit later so joe you picked this song and um i know you mentioned that that you kind of like this is basically one of your dad's favorites it sounds like when he was growing up um and uh you kind of grew up listening to it is that kind of your your um your history with the song or do you have any other more uh, color you want to add to that no you know um it's that but in reverse you know i I mentioned that i do this podcast and and the whole theme about excuse me the whole the whole idea the premise of the podcast is to take little known battles that had very important impact on history and when you read about and you know maybe we'll talk about this but when you read about the battle of new orleans you'll often see especially if they're shorter articles people discount the value of the battle of new Orleans. Hey, you know, historically it wasn't really that important, but it was cool. Right. That's, it is not true. And I think that that's what got me onto the battle. And as I, um, you know, every time I, I think about the battle of new Orleans, I, I remember my dad singing the, the, you know, the, the verses once in a while, my grandfather too, by the way, uh, I mean, it's just, a lot of people would you'd hear a line or two uh, here and there, and so um, the interest in the song came after the interest in, in the battle, but because there was that childhood familiarity with it. That's cool. Yeah. So my um, my history with the song is is somewhat similar to your own. So I think Joe, I've, I've met your parents, and I think your parents are roughly the same age as my parents, more or less. Your parents mm-hmm. might be a little bit older than mine, but. Um, mm-hmm. but same kind of thing. I remember when I was a kid, my mom put this song on because it was like a, like a funny song, you know, kind of a joke song about this. And I remember her listening to it and my grandmother, her mother was there and she started laughing at this song. She's like, Oh, I remember this song from when I was younger, you know, like, cause it's such an old song. Um, and, and, you know, my grandma, she, my grandma's still alive, but she was talking about like how she, she, this song still makes her chuckle because, um, when the, the first time she heard it and, and we'll get into this when we get to the lyrics, but, um, she would, she just imagines in her mind's eye, you know, all these British fighting these red coats, or I'm sorry, the, the red coats fighting the Americans. And when the, when the British flee the battle, spoiler alert, um, she just imagine, imagine in her mind's eye, like all these red coats, you know, running with their tail between their legs, you know, through the bushes and through the briars and the brambles yeah. and this and that. And it was just, it was a really, it was a really funny image for her as a, as a younger girl, like imagining that in her mind. And my grandma's in her late eighties, you know? Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's cool that you picked this song. Cause this is a favorite in our house now. Like my son Brecken, the, my, the soccer player, he, he listened, yeah. he, he literally listened to it today. Like unironically, yeah. you know, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So that's well, cool, I, I I had never heard it before this. 
Um, I wouldn't doubt that I had probably heard it. Like it sounds like something my grandpa would have played. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't recall ever hearing it. So anyway. that's cool, man. Um, so, I mean, Scott, I mean, as, as the, uh, I mean, cause Joe and I already kind of know a little bit about this particular song in the battle, but how, how much like preamble about like the historical period do you think we should get into, or do you think it'll just come out in the lyrics or what do you think? Um, yeah, for, from what I could tell in, in the lyrics, there there's allusions to where we're at, who, like the the major players. So I think I think we could probably get into the lyrics, and and we'd be safe. Okay. So the one thing I will say is I'll I'll have a little preamble about the actual song itself, the history of the song. So Johnny Horton was kind of like a folksy, maybe you can call him early country music singer. Um, that it was fairly like not really all that well known pretty much until around this era when he wrote this song, actually, I'm sorry, sang this song. Um, and this song came out like early 1959. So the version we're listening to is from 1959, but Johnny Horton didn't write this song. The guy that wrote it is actually a guy who calls himself, uh, Jimmy Driftwood, who is also kind of like a Southern, he's from Arkansas, kind of a Southern folk music kind of guy, um, who he, he's long dead now, but he he actually wrote this song because uh, Jimmy Driftwood, the author of this song, was from like Nowersville, Arkansas, born at the turn of the century. He had like his grandfather's fiddle that was made from like 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 a like a leg from his mother's bed and like a fence post, you know, and like made that into a fiddle and started started writing songs on it, and um and he he went and got a degree. And then went they got married and then went back to his hometown in Arkansas, this small town in Arkansas called Timbo, Arkansas. But he um he was teaching high school and uh and he he had this passion for history. And so he would write these little folk songs for his high school students to kind of learn history in like a fun, exciting way. And that's how he wrote this song or why he wrote this song was to basically teach high school kids, you know, the young whippersnappers of the mm-hmm. era um, about the Battle of New Orleans. And he wrote that the actual song was written in the mid 30s, like in 1936, I think, something like that. And so he wrote that and it kind of became like a local folk song, but he never really did much with it. But then in like the late 50s, Johnny Horton decided to record his own version of it. And that like shot Johnny Horton straight to the top. It put this song on the map. And it's basically been like kind of a, a crowd pleaser ever since. Um, but I know that Johnny Horton actually changed quite a few of the lyrics. He took a lot of the historical stuff out because the Jimmy Driftwood version is way, way longer. And it has like a ton of more historical content in it. And Johnny Horton just kind of sang like the fun zany parts, you know, that the kids like to hear. Mm-hmm. So, but well, it, that, it, yeah, I, I don't know much about this. Um, the genre or, or like the history behind this, uh, the, the music, but, um, the, the, the feel of it made me feel like I was like watching, um, Robin, like the, the Disney Robin hood or something like that. Oh yeah. 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 The, the, is it Roger Miller? Right. The guy that did the, yeah. uh, the music. So. For that. Yeah. 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 Well, it's the same era, you know, say, I think these guys are probably, they're probably, uh, contemporaries more or less, but, um, Johnny Horton actually, uh, died in a, uh, in a car accident, like while he was touring at the age of 35, the year after this song came out. Hmm. So, um, but yeah, gone too soon, man. But anyway, so let's, uh, that's, that's like this specific song. So Johnny Horton didn't write it, but he definitely put it on the map. Um, and he kind of made it his own, you know, the intro we hear in the beginning is actually the little ditty from, from Dixie. Um, 
but then he just he gets right into it. Um, so do you guys want to dig into the lyrics here and just kind of see what we can pick apart? Yeah, they come in hot and fast. They really do. Um, so, uh, Coach Joe, since you're the, the guest of honor, you want to start with just uh, the first verse there? I don't know if you, have, if you have the lyrics already pulled up. Sure, I do. In 1814, we took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans and we caught the bloody British in the town of New Orleans. Cool. So thoughts on that one. I always have thoughts as everybody knows. So, the- well, you, you know, my interest in this is the, the actual historical facts. So the, the fun part of this song is just, again, how absolutely inaccurate and the year is right. They did get there in 1814 and the town is right. They, uh, Colonel Jackson, he wasn't a Colonel. He was general Jackson. Uh, they didn't well, go down the mighty Mississippi, but go, so, go so um, uh, I, I, I'd, I'd seen someone mention a study once that the best way to teach is to introduce the misconceptions first and then introduce oh. like the, 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 the actual fact. So this, this might be a good way to um, uh, teach the, the actual history here. Yeah. So didactically, maybe this is brilliant. It was yeah, intentional. Johnny, under, Johnny knows what he's doing. <laughs> Johnny Horton uh, was a man of, uh, you know, he, he was a, a man of the thought and, and probably <laughs> was just trying to and say, Jimmy Driftwood, that's a great song, but let me uh, let me change a few things because I think the youth of today aren't aren't getting it through their heads. So let's let's change some some facts up and see what see what the smarties do with it. All right. So tell us why it's wrong or t- tell us the the, uh, the wrong part, what, what it's trying to say, and then tell us why it's wrong. So, um, well, again. Colonel Jackson, he, he was uh, a general and um, they, they didn't actually come from Missis- down the Mississippi. They, uh, they had just finished def- defeating you. So <clears throat> the, the context here is that the British were trying to invade New Orleans. But so, sorry, going and up so, the- sorry to interject a little bit of context. What war are we in and, and what like, oh. year and all that stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's the war of 1812, but it's mm-hmm. two years later, right? It's, it's 1814. And the British had decided to do a three pronged attack. And, and the, for those who don't know, the war of 1812 was not the best moment for American military demonstration. Uh, we lost a lot. Um, and, and in fact, very few things went well for the Americans. And the British concocted a plan where they would have a three-pronged attack. They were going to attack from Canada. And they were going to attack up the Chesapeake, which they did. They burned our capital. And the other, uh, <clears throat> you know, they, they put together a, a really big force that was going to take New Orleans. And the idea was that if they could come down um, from the north and up from the south, that they... Uh, to basically him in the Americans. So at the, at the conclusion of the war, the, the, the farthest West, the Americans would be able to go is the Mississippi because the British would have uh, control of everything beyond that. So when we're talking about um, the context here, we're talking about that third wave that, that was coming with, with about 15,000 troops. They were looking for the easiest way to get into new Orleans. And the easiest way is actually not up the, the Mississippi river. So they were going to go into Mobile, Alabama, or perhaps Pensacola, Florida. And General Jackson had already uh, rebuffed their attempts to land. So he came overland uh, across uh, to New Orleans. Hmm. 
So and he had already uh, he already thwarted them at Mobile, Alabama, and in Pensacola, Florida. So here we are. Yeah, well, and 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 to to add just a tad more context, to what you're talking about, Joe. So part of the reason why the British attack or were considering attack from the from the base of the Gulf of Mexico um, into that area is because the Louisiana Purchase had basically just happened. It was like like eight, 10 years earlier, uh, Napoleon had sold this massive chunk of land to the U.S., partially to fight, to, to, fund, to, to fund his war against the British over, over in Europe. Um, and, and that included like Louisiana, we now know as modern Louisiana, New Orleans, all the way up to like part of Canada. Um, and so part part of this this idea was the british were going to go oh we'll 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 attack down at the south there and we can reclaim some of the old these old spanish territories and old british territories and kind of reclaim what was once ours or take take what was once french to kind of you know deny that to the americans like you said um and so that was that that'll come into play later i'll explain more of that later but that's part of the reason why they kind of had their eyes on on i guess new orleans was because of partly because of that yeah. Um, well, oh, go sorry. No, go, ahead, go ahead. Oh, yeah. So I was, and also New Orleans at this point in time is is a major shipping hub. A lot right. of the commerce that had, uh, you know, a lot of the raw goods that are developed that were developed across the Caribbean, uh, like sugar cane and and stuff like that, uh, including the products from the American interior, especially pelts, things like that. This was the staging area. This is where they put them on ships and, and shipped them over to Europe. So this was, I mean, when, when we're talking about new Orleans in in the year of 1814, we're talking about a, a relatively cosmopolitan, arguably the most cosmopolitan city in America at the time where you had people, uh, there were, there were a lot of Portuguese, a lot of Germans, um, and there were Polish, uh, obviously a lot of French and Spanish, French and Spanish, uh, uh, were the, the predominant, uh, predominant people there. But I mean, this was a major, a major economic hub. And so having this for any country is valuable. It, 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 the prize was obvious. There, there's uh, no uh, no speculation why uh, and Britain wanted it. it. It was worth a lot of money. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah. it said, it says, uh, it mentions a town near New Orleans. Where? So what, what town is that? I'm sorry if you already mentioned it, but do we know? I think isn't it, isn't it Chalmette? Isn't that what it, I think it's they called it? I, I, I think it was just called New Orleans at the time, but it was kind of oh. just on the coast outside New Orleans. I think technically, like a yeah. suburb of it. Or so it was, yeah, someone, it was about, actually some guy's plantation. Like yeah, it was like some guy's plantation actually. But hmm. yeah. right, there were a stack of plantations on your way to New Orleans, like as you're moving up the Mississippi. And so this battle happened at the Chalmette plantation, mostly at the Chalmette plantation. Got it. Yeah. And if you go to this battlefield now, it's actually called the Chalmette. I think it's called the Chalmette Battlefield or Chalmette Memorial or something like that. It's actually not even called, right. it's not even called Battle of New Orleans um, right. Memorial or whatnot. But, um, but, but you're, I mean, Joe's right. So the, this is the War of 1812, which started in 1812. Um, this is two years later now, towards the end of the war. Um, and uh, it says in 1814, they took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson on the mighty Mississippi. As Joe said, it was near the Mississippi and General Jackson, meaning Andrew Jackson, was there. He was not a colonel yet, but it did happen in 1814. 
I'm assuming they took some bacon and beans. They took something to eat, I guess. This, this was common. Yeah, um, pork and beans was actually a really common military fare. It was really easy to to keep and to transport. And so that that is uh, surprisingly uh, extremely historically accurate. Hmm. That's actually the most accurate part of that verse. <laughs> Besides the, the, year. The, the year, the year, and um, the pork and beans. That's yeah. right. The British, the British bought pork and beans with them ashore. Uh, you know, when, when they came to fight, they brought barrels of pork and beans uh, to do it. So so both sides would have had pork and beans. And Jimmy Driftwood is uh, a master at his craft, I think. What we're <laughs> yes. It's also a Weezer song, I think. It's also delicious. Um, so, and it's uh, it's funny that he says, and we caught the bloody British, because bloody in Britain is a, like a curse word. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I remember when I was in college, there was this girl in one of my classes who was actually British and we were doing this. I forgot what we were doing. It was some game where we had to pass around like, like words that we would say. And someone wrote the word bloody on a piece of paper and she literally wouldn't read it out loud. And it wasn't like a joke. Like she was like, I was like, no, this is like a bad word. I can't read this. And she showed it to me. I was like, oh, it says bloody. And she's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you said that. And it's like, like, honey, you're in America. Like we, we just think it's like a funny word that means like, you know, I, I don't know. Kind yeah, of disparaging the British, but but in Britain, that's a bad word. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of that, that lyric is kind of a poke in the eye a little bit to the, to right. the British, like like it doesn't it doesn't matter to us, but I know it's going to make you mad. Right. Yeah. Plus, it's an alliteration. The bloody British. It just it works. Yep. But all right, cool. Um, For sure. Yeah, and what well, well, I, I always have stuff to say, but I'll, I'll hold off on that. So after so that's verse one. So thanks, Joe. Then we have the chorus. Scott, you want to read the chorus? Yeah. <clears throat> all right we fired our guns and the british kept a coming there wasn't nigh as many as there was a while ago we fired once more and they and they begging to run in on down the mississippi to the gulf of mexico kind of a tongue yeah. twister a little bit yeah they, they begin, like I, think, I think it says they they begin to run in i think because it it kind of has like the folksy kind of like twang in there we fired once more and they begin to run and i think is what it yeah says. they begin to run in sorry but anyway um that part's kind of accurate <laughs> yeah there i mean that i think like the british kept coming that the, there there was a from, from what i gathered that there the british army was quite big there was a lot of like the the ratios there were were well in the in the British British favor, right? Yeah, that's, so, that's yeah. right. They probably had, um, you know, what's interesting is um, it, it appears that virtually none of the sources on either side can agree on how big the armies were or what the casualty counts looked like. Uh, they didn't even agree with each other. So we don't we don't know uh, a lot of the numbers we have. Uh, ranges but either either way it, it was about three to one in in terms of uh british to americans that that were defending so the, yeah. the, the and, americans were were firing at him but the british kept coming yeah well because yeah. the british had anyway you look at it the british the british had superior force both in training and in numbers like they just had a superior force yeah, that's not even debatable. The, right. they, I mean, what people need to understand about this British force is they had just defeated Napoleon. Like well, this, and, this... and by just, it's like 10 seconds earlier. 
yeah, I'm, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're like, man, we just finished this one. Now we got to go to uh, Louisiana and uh, do that. But a lot of these were veterans of, uh, of that war, of the Napoleonic Wars. So, so a lot of these, not only are they part of the, easily uh, the, the best military machine of the day, they're veterans too. They've seen, uh, they've seen war. And when they came to the United States, they expected this to be pretty easy. They were told that it would be easy. Um, you know, they the thought they, they, they would steamroll the Americans. That's they, because, to be honest, in the rest of the war, that's the way it went. Right? They um, they had not. The United States had 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 a couple of uh, moments of resistance, but for the most part, the British went and did what they want wanted and they expected more of the same and they they thought this would be easy they had the numbers they had the training they had supplies um uh they had a commander who was well loved and well experienced everything was in their favor um except general jackson and uh, general jackson i guess the, the other thing to know about on, on the american side is kind of the opposite most of the uh, there were some regulars there were some marines and some uh, some Navy personnel and some some regular Army soldiers, but the overwhelming majority of Jackson's troops were volunteers, uh, both militia from New Orleans and um, uh, you know, the, the 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 militia, the Guard from uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, mostly Tennessee and some, some other places. But um, I mean, as an example, when the Kentuckians showed up, only about um, like a third of them even had weapons. They just showed up. And so mm-hmm. uh, the the odds were not in the Americans' favor. Uh, so when they, when they when they showed up, I, I don't know that the verse is is like terribly useful in terms of understanding the or the, the chorus. I guess I don't know that it's useful in understanding the battle, just because the battle. I mean, this was uh, virtually two weeks uh, uh, worth of uh, fighting, and so so it didn't quite happen that cleanly. Um, and, and and again to nitpick. Even the British didn't go down the Mississippi. They uh, they they went out uh, east. Uh, basically, nobody but nobody went down or up the Mississippi. So yeah, but, but yeah. So so the story the story trying Sorry. to be told is uh, they fired their guns. The British kept coming. They took out a bunch of British because um, there there isn't as many now as there was a while ago. Um, then they fired once more, and the British started running, and they went down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. So yeah, yeah they, and I think try, he's trying to com- trying to condense the whole battle That's into right. into four lines. Yeah, I, I mean, it would be unreasonable for him to uh, give a play by play in his in his chorus, but you know, yeah, it's not the the battle. The final battle uh, was only twenty five minutes long. So yeah, but but even then, it was. There's a lot going on. Is it? I don't. I don't even know if it's fair to condense it like this. But it is a song, so there you go. Yeah. Well, because like, yeah, because you're, you're right. Because the, the the lead up to the battle was. I mean, the British were digging like canals to like get their ships yeah. there. They all That's like right. the, the the manpower required. And like, this, if, if you think about it, it's 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 kind of breathtaking. Like the 
the the the projection of power the British had because this is a backwater compared to the British, right? Like you said, Joe, you hinted earlier, this is going on towards the end of the Napoleonic Wars. So what the British are really doing halfway, all the way across the world, closer to their home country, is they're literally fighting Napoleon. And kind of like we talked about in, in one of our other episodes, um, Napoleon had had taken over France and he's marching on every country in Europe, basically. And we, we essentially have a proto world war. And what ends up happening is all these various countries like Prussia and Russia and United Kingdom and, and Sweden, all these people, they, they form these coalitions against just Napoleon, against the French. And they're all, they all have these different names, the war of the first coalition, the war of the second coalition, all the way up to the war of the sixth coalition. So this is going on during the war of the sixth coalition, during this time, Napoleon sells the Louisiana, Louisiana Purchase to the U.S. to fund his armies and, and fight the British. Um, but then at the same time, the British are fighting the Americans. But it's kind of like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if you guys misunderstand, if, if this, if you guys feel differently. But the War of 1812 to the British is almost like a sideshow up until they defeat Napoleon, because Napoleon is fielding some super big numbers. Like the Battle of the Battle of Leipzig, they call it the Battle of of Nations, which happened like just before this, the largest land battle ever to take place on Europe, European soil until World War One. There's was like 600,000 guys in the field. Like these are these are massive battles. And so when we have something like this, like the War of 1812, it's huge to Americans. But in British history, it's almost like a footnote, because all their main guys, like Duke of Wellington, all these guys, they're all fighting like the real threat, Napoleon, right? And um, and so when this battle happened, the the war of the Sixth Coalition had literally just ended. They hadn't even that they were still like in the process of like signing the the peace agreements and stuff when this happened. And so you're right, a lot of these guys were veterans of fighting Napoleon, but they they had just beaten Napoleon. Yeah. And um, spoiler alert, like right after this war ends, Napoleon comes back for the right. war of the seventh coalition. <laughs> so, well, and, um, and it's important to point out that that's actually, I mean, you make a good point because that's why we engaged in war in the first place. It was definitely our strategy we said, Hey, for the last, however many years, Britain has been abusing us. Um, we definitely had complaints and Britain just didn't, didn't care. They didn't take us serious. And we're like, well, you know what? Britain's kind of wrapped up in this whole European war thing with Napoleon. Now would be a really good time because if we do it now, Britain's too distracted. They don't have the manpower to do anything about it. And um, good idea in theory. Did it work out? And and yeah, so as soon as they had uh, some a moment to breathe, Britain sent over a whole bunch of troops, in, including Wellington's brother-in-law. Uh, hero of the Peninsula War uh, to command these troops, and yeah, so so we we didn't do great calculations or early execution of our calculations. So so yeah, that's those are good points. Yeah, it was it was definitely it was definitely a gamble, um, and uh, and so that that's why it's just I mean I think a lot of times out of the history I grew up with in U.S. history, and I, I'm I'm a fan of it because I, I love my country, but. I always grew up with like, oh yeah, when you fight Americans, you lose. Look at the British lose when they fight Americans all the time. That's kind of always like the prevailing theory, right? Is like America centric, right. which I'm I'm very America centric. So I'm not knocking that. But when you look at like the wider context, you're like, look, 
this was like a sideshow for the British. They had they had their own fish to fry in their homeland, you know. And so they were still, I mean, they still took took this com- this this conflict seriously. But I, I had a coworker that was from England. I was like, dude, what do you know about the War of 1812? And he, he literally goes, What's that? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because they, they don't even call it the War of 1812. That's what we call it. You know, they just refer right. to it as like part of, as like part of the Napoleonic Wars. Because if you if you look at like articles in the Napoleonic Wars, we're listed we're listed with the French as a co-belligerent, you know, of, of the English. <laughs> we weren't right. allies or anything, but um, but anyways, I just I think it's funny, but um, but I digress. Um, so should we uh should we keep going out with the lyrics? Let's do it. So you did the chorus, Scott. So verse two, I'll I'll do verse two. Um, is it says we looked down the river and then in the background, there's people going hut two, three, four, kind of like marching in step. It says we looked down the river and, and we see the British come and there must've been a hundred of them beaten on the drums. They stepped so high and they made their bugles ring. We stood beside our cotton bales and didn't say a thing. And then it plays the, the, uh, the chorus again that Scott just read, you know, we fired our guns and the British kept it coming. Um, so this one, I don't feel like the the, the second verse here. Um, I don't think it's it's super historically dense, like much of this song. Um, right. The only things I wanted to pick out there is they looked down the river again. They're not coming up the river. I mean, they they landed. They they did they did ferry men. They did have a bunch of ships out in the bay um, that they kind of brought and they ferried guys in by rowboat of all things, um, you know, to to make landfall and then attack the Americans. So I'm not sure what river they're looking down but it's definitely not the Mississippi. I don't think. Um, but I will say this, that, that maybe, maybe uh, um, Jimmy Driftwood is a master of his craft because where it says in the second line, and we see the British come, that's actually accurate. One of the, one of the, the major downfalls of the British in this battle is they did not have the element of surprise. The Americans essentially knew they were coming like all like pretty well in advance and could prepare for it um and so that's why like the british are not they're not marching against in this battle they're not marching against a bunch of like well they are marching marching against a bunch of ragtag hicks they are you know with like squirrel guns and stuff but these are these are heavily entrenched people who had plenty of time to dig fortifications and supporting range of fire all this kind of stuff so they yeah. didn't. They definitely didn't catch the Americans unawares. You know, and, and if I may, one thing that's really cool, in in my opinion, is Jean Lafitte. So Jean Lafitte's a pirate, and uh, well, no, he's a privateer, right? And so it depends he, on who you ask. One man's private is another man. Privateer is another man's pirate. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, he was arrested for piracy, and of course, his defense was, I, "I'm I'm a privateer at a Cartagena." And he had amassed so. I mean, his warehouses are one of the reasons the British wanted to take New Orleans, is he had amassed so much good. Um, but he had a ton of uh, a ton of weaponry that the Americans. That's that's what have ultimately convinced them. But Jean Lafitte was this, was essentially a smuggler, and he had to smuggle his goods into New Orleans, and so he knew every single him him and his men, the the Baratarian pirates. They know every single waterway. They they know where you can bring an army and where you can't. And on on the eve of the battle, as we know that the British are going to try to uh, land close to New Orleans, uh, General Jackson agrees to allow because at first he didn't want anything to do with Jean Lafitte, 
But then he's like, okay, I'll let you help me. Also, can we borrow some guns? Um, but Gene Lafitte allows him, allows Jackson to essentially, uh, you know, he rolls out the map and says, look, they're not, they can't come here. They can't come here. They can only come here, here, or here. And Jackson lays outposts at those places where only the, the British can, can go. And, and that's one thing that allows, so you're right, Sean. And that's why, because we already had lookouts to know exactly uh, which of these embarkation points the British would choose. And so we had plenty of time. And then, you know, the British are trying to move thousands of men uh, several miles. Uh, to their, their boats were too big. They didn't bring draft boats, shallow draft boats. So they had to bring, um, yeah, rowboats to, to, to ferry men. Uh, it was basically 60 miles uh, into uh, into closer proximity. And, and I just, I mean, we got to watch the whole thing. We knew exactly what was happening. And, and we got to count how many British there were. Um, and, and so, so, yeah. The only <laughs> thing about this verse is, uh, hey, but we can't, cotton bales. There, there weren't any cotton bales by the end of the uh by the by the when the battle happened because they, they did use cotton bales at, at the beginning but they caught on fire and they're like okay this isn't going to work so they pulled the cotton bales and just used mud and timber right well and and i i was reading about um when they were when the british you're right because this is back before any dredging had ever been done um to mm-hmm. like you know hollow out these these uh waterways for big big shipping and so all the british ships you're exactly right Joe, they're, they're massive ship of the line right they're they're way out out in the bay and so they'd have to literally put these like like several thousand at a time uh british troops on rowboats and row them and you're right it's like 60 miles it, it took them like 10 hours to just just to yeah. row one way you know and and come back get more guys and do it so by the time they got there they're exhausted you know it, it's just this this huge ordeal and that was kind of like the first of many uh like faux pas if you will of of uh like the, the british build up to this battle but sorry scott i right. interrupted you what were you gonna say Oh, I was just going to say that this, um, it seemed like to me, the point of this verse was to kind of give the vibe of both sides of the battle where the British are, are it says they stepped high and they made their bugle, bugles ring. So I'm, I'm thinking like, like a pompous British stick up their butt type. And while the, the Americans are, are hiding behind a, a cotton bale or whatever, that they're just a little more ragtag, um, what well, it kind of has and, that and, military... and then said didn't say a thing so so they're kind of just like hiding watching them and uh so it's more like an ambush feel type thing right even though both of them knew exactly where the other one was <clears throat> um but but you're right scott but it also has that kind of martial feel to it because as he's talking about the british marching up you know mm-hmm. you know the, the americans look down the river and see the british marching up in the background is a background singer saying hut two three four yeah. like they're marching you know so yeah. it's, it's the whole that kind of fun fun part of the song coming out right there which was really creative um it, and it gives like a, it gives an underdog feel yeah to the americans and we right, americans lo- love love the underdog so we do love a good underdog don't we because we're mm-hmm. always the underdog mm-hmm. <laughs> well yeah. we, used, we used to be we used to be yeah, yeah we used this to is be. definitely an underdog story yes so um but yeah so after that we got the you know we fired our guns british kept it coming the same chorus and then we've got verse three joe why don't you take verse three old hickory said we could take him by surprise if we didn't fire our muskets till we looked them in the eye we held our fire till we see their faces well then we opened up our squirrel guns and gave them. We really gave them well. We, and then yeah. it goes to the next verse or the chorus. Yeah, that, that's right. Right. Um, 
Yeah, and, and this is, uh, you know, I think that this is borrowing from Bunker Hill. You know, don't fire mm-hmm. to see the whites of their eyes. This is not, um, this, this was not a command given at, at New Orleans. Uh, he was Old Hickory. They did call uh, Jackson Old Hickory. Um, we, we didn't take them. There was no surprise taking uh, here at New Orleans, like you said, Sean, earlier. Uh, they knew exactly where, where, they, where they were. Uh, both sides knew exactly uh, where each other were. Yeah, this and, is just uh, one of those one of those familiar things that every American knows, and so he just, yeah. he threw it in there as like a a national thing, like like oh yeah, we're Americans. I That's what so. we did. Yeah, yeah, I I think so. I I think this is just a feel, and we kind of we kind of know what he's talking about, just, even if it's not terribly historically accurate. We know what he's talking about, and we can visualize the battle uh, by by this verse. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and the, and this. The War of 1812 kind of comes on the heels of the Revolutionary War. There's a there's a, a lot of them kind of get they, they kind of get confused the two the two uh, conflicts. But a lot of personal opinion, a lot of the the Americanness and like the American idea of being an American, I think was forged in the War of 1812 more so than the Revolutionary War. I mean, our 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 freaking national anthem was during the War of 1812. Yeah. Um, that's when it was written was during the battle of Baltimore during the war of 1812, not the revolutionary war. Um, you know, and, and so I, I think that's, that's kind of, I mean, it's often been said the revolutionary war is when we fought for our, um, for our independence and the battle of the war of 1812 is we fought to keep it. But, um, so old Hickory, like you were saying, Joe is the nickname that his men, I think affectionately, affectionately, uh, referred to to General Jackson, Andrew Jackson. Um, he's on the $20 bill for those keeping track at home. Um, but o- Old Hickory is kind of an interesting term because I don't know anyone else that has a nickname like Old Hickory. So it must be specific to General Jackson. I don't think it's a thing of the era. Maybe it is. Yeah. But as I understand it, the idea was that he was kind of like a, like a, a stiff, woody, kind of old, almost like an old crotchety kind of guy is the impression I get. And that was sort of the reason why he had that nickname. Now, Joe, do you understand something different from that? Yeah. I mean, he, he certainly was that I I've read, interestingly, I've read a couple of different things. Um, one being that he, uh, you know, he just kept going, you know, as a, as a fighter kept, kept going. Um, but no, I, I think, uh, I, I think that any of those interpretations are probably, accurate because those are those are all true uh he was known as being kind of a kind of a crotchety man he, he was still pretty pretty young at this at this juncture uh but 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 relatively inflexible and uh it, but but at the same time he, he basically never lost a battle and uh i think he was reliable to his men in that in that way yeah because yeah, I, I was just looking it up he was born in 1767 uh, so he was yeah. he was 48 years old in this battle, which which for for a for a, a, a general, I don't think is is necessarily old, but he does, he wasn't like a super young guy either, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. So sure. um, that's yeah. how they're, they're calling him old Hickory at age 48, you know, which I guess right. maybe maybe in the maybe in 1815 it is. It is. He is. Yeah. Old. Um, by, the, by the way, he he was in the Revolutionary War. Yeah. As a child. Uh, as, yeah. He was a 13 year old uh, messenger uh, for uh, commander. Got caught right. by the British, him and yep. his brother. Yep, and they actually, a British officer actually slashed his hand with a cavalry yeah. sword, and he held a deep-seated hatred for the British, 
ever since. So yeah. he he had no love of the British. <laughs> no, and, and his mom died. Uh, I mean, basically all of his family died because of the British. Right. Either killed, um, <clears throat> killed fighting them or, or because of them. And so he um, had nothing kind to say about the British. Ever. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but um, yeah. So old Higgory said we could take him by surprise. Yeah, definitely not accurate, but that's okay. It's a fun story and it kind of makes you think, but um, the, the, the only other line I would call out in here is the squirrel guns at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I understand, like you were saying before, Joe, like these guys were literally just like ragtag militia, the, the vast, like 80% of this army is just ragtag militia guys who just showed up either with nothing or with like just whatever gun they grabbed from their closet, you know, which, which would have been like a squirrel gun or just something they use for hunting in their backyard, you know? Yep. And, and, um, it's funny because I was reading another, another quote of, I should say it's a historian talking about the war of 1812. And he said that was, that was specifically what the British thought they were going to get. They thought they were going to get a bunch of ragtag farmers with squirrel guns. That was like an exact yep. quote of what this historian was, was, um, paraphrasing the British troops there on what they thought they were going to encounter. Right. So, um, but I do know that the, um, the 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 regulars that were there there's only a couple hundred of them they did have like standard issue you know muskets but they're right. i mean they're muskets but everyone else just grabbed like whatever they had on hand or uh the baritarians um that's how you say that word right i've right, never said right. that I've never, I've never said it out loud before i just realized yeah, baritarian yeah, yeah, so, from the island of baritaria yeah right yeah so baritaria or baritaria bay is a real place you can look at right now um like on a map and, and it used to be this like staging area for a lot of piracy for a long time. And that's why Jean Lafitte was there is he, he kind of like, right. that was like his place to hang out. And so we had this like cache of like weapons and money and all kinds of stuff. And he's like, Oh, Hey, you guys are fighting the British. Okay. Well, Hey, don't arrest me. And here's some guns and <laughs> let me go and let me do my yeah. business, you know? Um, and so that, that's, what's kind of fun about, about um, when you read about this battle is it kind of was a very much a ragtag army on the American side, because you had some British, some some American regular soldiers, just normal, you know, American like actual American troops. You had a ton of militia, but you also had like some like Choctaw Indians and like free colored men and like pirates, you know, like fighting yeah. fight, fighting like this this uniform. Such a cosmopolitan cosmopolitan army, isn't it? Right. It's, it's amazing, right? Um, and if I may, you know, the the interesting thing about what Jackson was able to bring. Cause he's like, you said that the British expected this and that is what they brought to the battlefield. The difference though, um, I, I think uh, number one, the Baratarians. So not only were they able to bring a ton of gunpowder and um, I, I, I think I remember like a thousand muskets or, or rifles or, or something like that, a thousand stand of arms, but you know, these are, these are very experienced cannoneers and they're used to floating on a boat bouncing up in the water shooting a target that's also bouncing in the water and they are so trained and you know they they are accumulating all this wealth because they're so good at what they do so now jackson is utilizing them both on the two boats that uh the navy has patrolling the uh the mississippi they only had they only had two it should be noted there's only two two there two versus like 60 yeah um and and so so they had i think they had five craft or so in like lake burgoyne uh lake borgna 
Um, but uh, but basically, no, they, they didn't have a lot. So they staffed, they they filled in the blanks with these baritarium cannoneers. And especially in the field, like uh, their uh, artillery batteries were being manned, uh, some by regular U.S. artillery, some by uh, Navy Marine or by Navy personnel. But the big guns were being manned by these baritarians. And they were an absolute deciding factor um, when they tried when the British tried to bring the cannon into play. They got absolutely annihilated by the baritarians because now they're they're sitting in a fixed position shooting at cannon that are in a fixed position. This is way easier than being on the open sea. And and the, even the British commented, they're like, wow, so I guess we're not going to have cannon. Um, and so uh, but but the other thing is that, oh, again, Jackson had already mobilized. He, he was the major general of the Tennessee militia. And the first thing he had to do was go fight the creek. And his ragtag militia gained some really valuable military experience. Uh, they did, they did, uh, were accompanied by some regular soldiers, including Sam Houston. Um, but, uh, but, but anyway, by the time they hit New Orleans, these ragtag dirty shirts, um, they're actually, they, they got, some, they're starting to figure things out. And so uh, one of the more devastating volleys of fire. So we're going through the, the, the verses of the song. Um, you know, the Tennesseans had like four ranks of, of firing. So they walk up to the, to the earthworks, a rank would fire. They would pull back next rank. They get up, they'd fire, you know, four at a time. So there's this constant barrage. They were able to pull off that regular uh, barrage because they, they kind of had become used to it. So they, the, even though they were this ragtag, almost literally ragtag, um, they, they, they had more experience than I think the British had bargained for. Yeah. And they found that out very quickly. And, and it's interesting yeah. you point that out to the Navy aspect of this because the Americans had, you're right, it's a handful of craft, but nothing, nothing to speak of. Two, two actual Navy ships. One of them, one, one of the other craft they had there was like a steamboat with like one gun right. on the front of it. So like yeah. not, yeah. and the British, when you said like 60, it actually was 60. The British showed up with 60 ships and we had two and like a steamboat right. and like some paddle boats, like just, and then right. most of it, most of it's garbage. Um, and so what ends up happening is, is, uh, it's, it's actually pretty amazing is, is the British sink, I think one of our ships almost right away. Um, cause they had the mm-hmm. U they had the USS Louisiana and, um, the steamboat enterprise and the USS Carolina, but, um, mm-hmm. the British opened fire on one of these one ship and they sink it. The Americans managed to pull the cannons off and take them ashore. And they're basically using Navy cannons against the British, which are massive guns, like 32 pounders. These are huge guns. Yeah with massive ranges. Um, and then the, the Baratarians, these pirates, um, the other ship that was there, the, um, I believe it was the U S the, the, uh, the U S the Louisiana, I think is what it was. Yeah, I'm right. getting it mixed up. Yeah. yeah. But yep, they, they, they basically rescued the ship by getting their rowboats up next to it, tying their rowboats to it and literally ro- straight up rowing it away to safety right. yeah. out of the it's range amazing, of the British it? guns, which is amazing. Cause I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever like, if you guys under ever fire done, like, too. Yeah, under fire. But I mean, after a while rowing on the ocean like that, man, like that is some serious arm strength. Cause it's, it's just, I can't imagine. But, uh, but, but the, the, the point of the comment is, is that 
the the U.S. basically like like gathered every gun they could take from the ships and brought them ashore and basically made gun batteries for the for, to use as artillery against the British. The British tried to do the same thing, but the problem the British had is they're using navy navy guns which have small wheels, and so to pull them through like swampland, which is basically all this area is very difficult and so their their guns kept getting stuck and they had all these issues but they're also under fire um and and um actually i'm not going to go into that next comment i was going to make because we'll get to that later but um so in addition to like this ragtag army they also had like salvaged navy cannons that the americans right. used behind their lines but they used them with like deadly effect which we'll talk about in a second um but i think we're in uh verse four now scott yeah. you want to do verse four yeah, they ran through the briars and they ran through the brambles and they ran through the bushes where the rabbit couldn't go. They ran they ran so fast that the hounds couldn't catch them down in the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, I forgot. I want to go back and make one comment. Sorry. That part you read, Joe, about um, uh, in, in uh, verse three where it says, um, you know, old hickory said don't fire muskets till we you know we can take them by surprise don't fire your muskets till you look them in the eyes and it says um we held our fire till we see their faces well then we opened up our squirrel guns and we really gave them well we fired our guns so apparently the, uh, the original song actually says the word hell right there but johnny horton specifically did that little uh edit so that it could this song could be played on the radio right so just a fun fact there um but Anyway, uh, going back to the verse you just read, Scott, uh, with the running through the briars and the brambles and ran through the bushes where the rabbit couldn't go. They ran so fast the hounds couldn't catch him on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so, Joe, maybe you can enlighten us or Scott, feel free to chime in. Why were they running? <laughs> Sounds like they were losing. Very badly. Um, well, so go ahead. Yeah, you know, I just say, in in you know another historical inaccuracy here, they didn't run At because all. yeah they couldn't. Anytime somebody, I mean everybody, all the British were like flat against the ground because anytime somebody stood up, one of these amazing marksmen, American marksmen, would shoot them. And so it, it um, after truce was was finally called, there were five hundred British soldiers who just stood up all at once. Because they had no choice but to just press themselves against the ground. So, so anybody who would have actually ran, and I'm sure that at some point some people ran, right? But in terms of like this, that was uh, that was a bad idea for them because they were just easy targets. Yeah, what they what what actually happened is what they call an orderly retreat, where they kind of like you know they kind of assemble and they kind of all you know in order yeah. like fall back kind of thing, call for a truce. It was there was very little running because. Number one, the British don't do that very often, and number two, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't very just in the interest of self preservation. Well, to, um, to be the devil's advocate here, um, I, I I prefer this this description because um, <laughs> it goes along with the uh, I think it goes along with the theme that we read earlier, where because because the, they walked in all high and mighty with the stick up their butt, and then they're by the time the battle's yeah. over, they're tripping over themselves trying to get away from it, and so so it's just again it's a vibe, it's trying to trying to uh to kind of be a rally call be a hoorah for for america type thing 
I think I think you're right. I think it's part of that yeah. whole tongue in cheek, like, oh, look at the the bloody British. They walk in there, they step so high, you know, mm-hmm. as as they're as they're marching in, yeah, and then very british right very stereotypical british you know all in an all in a line all in form you know very very uh formulaic but then when they're running they're they're tripping over themselves like he said scott running away which is a characteristically un-british thing to do right, right? and so so it's it's very much i think uh yeah they can't in front of the british yeah yeah the 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 hoity-toity like overconfident guys come into our neck of the woods this is we know this place and uh and we don't have to pretend to be high and mighty to beat you. Right. We'll bring you down to our, to, to, to not only our level, but, but even lower. Right. Yeah. Now, other, other than I think some of that, that those fun facts, there's nothing else like historical about this verse. Cause they didn't run through briars or brambles or bushes. You know, maybe there was some briars, brambles and bushes there, but the hounds couldn't catch them. They didn't have any hounds there chasing them. And as we already established, they did not go down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico because they were right. on land for one, <laughs> um, right. and their ships were way out to sea. But um, but but I think it's important to note, um, and you guys can fill in, feel, uh, feel free to jump in and, and and kind of fill in some of the blanks here. But part of the reason why um, the 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 retreat of the British is described this way is because the Americans won like a shocking victory, like 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 blew the British minds victory, in my opinion, because what we have here is, is like we've been saying this whole time, this ragtag, colorful, motley crew, if you will, of of Americans with squirrel guns under this guy named Old Hickory, who is kind of like a, in a lot of ways, people thought of him as a country bumpkin, you know, from Tennessee, yeah. you know, yeah. and, um, and, 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 and he, he just defeated the, the greatest, the greatest fighting force in the world, at least the greatest naval force for sure probably the, the first or second most uh, land force, very experienced soldiers who had a ton of um, like battles to their name. And, and, and reason, was outnumbered by this yeah, force. Yeah. At least, at least right. two to one, possibly three to one. Exactly. Right. So they, they were outgunned, outmanned, like had, had no experience versus a ton of experience. Um, and at the, at the end of this battle, the estimates are the British, the British started with about 8,000 men, give or take, there's a bunch of different estimates, but I've 8,000 is yeah. one, at least one estimate I've seen at the end of this battle, they had a little over 2000 casualties, which for this day and age is that's huge. That's a huge casualty right. figure, casualty figure. The Americans lost 71 people. For, for the Battle of New Orleans. Now, again, there's a lot of disagreement on that. So, yeah, if, if I Joe's going to correct because, me right now. Go ahead, man. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> it, like I said, no American sources con, uh, confirm each other. No British sources confirm each other. But it, as far as the actual battle, when we are quoting these numbers, the one thing that gets confused is that, you know, we're talking about two to three weeks before the Battle of New Orleans and about a week or two after most of the americans who died actually died in skirmishes uh a little bit before and a little bit after especially after uh this battle in the actual battle of new orleans the 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 25 minutes that we're talking about we think only eight americans were killed possibly according to one source only one killed during the battle, the other seven dying from their wounds later. That's how... Which is very common. Um, amazingly 
ridiculous the outcome was. Because the British, and by the way, one of the British sources cites twenty six hundred casualties. So we we um, we uh, will never know, and we'll never know exactly how many died during the battle. But but at least several hundred. Um, I, I think I, I actually tried to refresh my memory today. I think Wikipedia says two ninety one. I, I think it, it might have been a little bit more than that. But um, but 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 what's important to this? What's so amazing about this battle? is and i think it goes to this whole theme of the vibe of this song you know they they came in really proud and they didn't just lose they lost so bad it was one it's statistically one of the worst defeats that the british military has ever suffered yeah and all the history of their fighting this is one of the worst even if you just go by the 291 that that wikipedia offers and, uh, and, and it's probably eight here. We, we lost some, we did an attack uh, a couple of nights, like the first night the British came in, we did an attack. We also on the West Bank of the Mississippi River, the British actually had a successful attack uh, there. And we lost, we lost another uh, 25 men, I think. Uh, so, so, so we lost, but in this one little battle it, where, where the focus was, right? Where the British just were decimated. Um, that was miraculous for for this little army uh, of Rectus. I think I think it's important. You said earlier, and I don't know that we really did much with it, Sean. But you've got these these French who, of course, have this generational hatred of the the British. You have Spanish. Um, uh, you have Americans who who were there. Obviously, Americans from New Orleans, and also Americans uh, from uh, the United States that have come over. You have a company of free men of color. Uh, by the way, Jeff- Jefferson made it a Jefferson uh, Jackson made a standing order that you couldn't disparage the uh, the free men of color. They got paid the same, uh, which was a little, out, which, which was a little out of char- which was a little out of character for Jackson, if you, if you know his policy with Indians and other things. But and sorry, continue. Yeah, no, I'm just saying. You know, we so we take this this very American. And we talk about like, what does it mean to be American? And, and I think something you said earlier is, is quite true. You're like, where this is where the United States started to feel American. Well, now you're taking all these very, very different people and you just use that to defeat the, the, the greatest threat in, in the world. And, and you didn't just win you, you won where there was absolutely no question about the result. So yeah, it, it wasn't, and and we should clarify for people that aren't like in the military history side of things or don't listen to a lot of these types of podcasts. When people say casualties, that doesn't mean dead. That means mm-hmm. dead, wounded, captured, missing, sick, any of it. Basically, just they can't fight. So, yeah. but but so regardless, the British suffer depending on who you ask, you know, 2000 ish casualties, yeah. the, the Americans lose basically a handful, like negligible yeah. amount of people. Right. And, um, and not, not only that, and this is kind of what I was building up to is that not only did the British lose just like a shocking number of guys from this, from this and, and other conflicts, but they lost their straight up general, their leader and the second in command, like right. on the battlefield, um, the, uh, the, 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 so we had, we had general Andrew Jackson on one side. The other guy was major general, uh, Sir Edward Packenham or Packenham was his name. 
And was he the one that was um, Wellingham's or Wellington's? Wellington's brother-in-law. He, he was married to, uh, his sister was married to Wellington. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So Duke of Wellington that defeated Napoleon, right? So illustrious family for right. sure. Um, but so apparently one of the, I think it's like a regiment of like 44th foot. So basically you've put soldiers in the, in mm-hmm. the British army. Um, the, the Americans, there's this thing, there's this at the battlefield, you can go there and see it now. It's called the Rodriguez Canal. And it's a canal to like mm-hmm. drain water and stuff for crops and so forth. Um, and the, the, the Americans basically use that canal to kind of build almost like a trench and these earthwork like embankments to like hide behind. Um, and uh, the, the, by the time the British got there, it was like this huge trench with like a wall or embankments in front of it. And, um, the, the guy that was in charge of, uh, like the, the, the scaling of this obstacle, um, at the time of the battle, he was found like a half mile away from the battle, not even engaging in the battle, not even preparing for the battle. And so, you know, when, if you want something done right, you gotta do it yourself. Uh, Major General Sir Edward Packenham, uh, who apparently is known for being really kind of rash and rushing into battle, I guess, he basically takes it upon himself to lead the 44th foot on horseback um, to to uh, basically charge up these earthworks that the Americans had. And they get there and realize they had forgotten the ladders and like the stuff they're going to use to like scale that to actually get <laughs> at the Americans. And it's during this time, this this commotion where uh, uh, Sir Edward Packenham gets wounded and he falls off his horse and his men are helping him back on his horse and he gets hit by grape shot and killed like on the battlefield in front of everybody. Um, and so then, then, uh, uh, major general Samuel Gibbs, his second in command also gets killed. I think like shortly thereafter, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, and then the, then the next guy, uh, Colonel Robert, uh, I'm sorry, uh, like John Keane, the next guy is in charge. He gets wounded in action. And then the, the, the fourth guy in charge, Colonel Rennie, also gets killed. So they, the British basically lose like their entire leadership structure, like in a matter of minutes. And so it's surprising. It's, it's actually more astounding. They did not run away like Johnny Horton says, considering they had just lost Matt had su- suffered massive casualties. They just lost their entire leadership structure and they're in the middle of battlefield being pummeled by massive naval cannons at like ridiculous ranges, like super close. Yeah. Um, um, yeah one, I mean, one of the, just as an example of what you're saying, the, um, man, I can't remember who was the commander of the 93rd, uh, the, the Highlanders, but they marched up and they're right, they're right in the middle. And, you know, of course the Tennesseans are trying to target the officers and their officer got shot. I mean, he looks like an officer. So he got shot like an officer and the Highlanders just stand there. No orders. Like they're just standing there. And one of the, uh, the American 32 pounders just unleashes a grape shot and mows like 200 guys down all at once. And that's messy. And they stay there. The guys who weren't knocked down stay there. They had to, somebody had to come in and all right, let's, uh, let's move along guys. Well, because, because the whole idea was like this, this is, this isn't just a British thing. I mean, it it is characteristically British, but this is, this is a warfare thing from the era. You, you follow your orders even under fire. And so the whole idea was, is like, Oh, our, our commander's dead. What do we do? We haven't been given order. We haven't been given orders to go forward or to retreat. So we literally stand here getting shot at. 
Yeah. Which, which, which is, is a crazy amount of like gumption to do that. Right. Especially because grape shot, we've mentioned it twice now for those that don't know um, is it's, it's basically like an anti-personnel type of um, cannon shot they would use. Cause in cannons in this era, they had all different kinds of stuff. They had, they had your regular cannonballs. They had what's called hot shot, which the British actually used in this um, against the mm-hmm. ships where they would basically get these, these furnaces that are on the ship and they would heat these cannonballs until they were literally red hot and then shoot them out of the cannon. To, and the idea was to start a fire on the enemy ship. So the British were using that, but they had that. They also had grape shot, which is basically these like little tiny um, like balls and sometimes just bits of debris and crap they found. They'd shove it down the cannon and shoot it. And it basically functions like a gigantic shotgun. Just t- right. tons of debris coming at you. You don't even got to be accurate. And what it does is it literally just pulverizes people. Um, and so that's that was pretty much like the, the main... If, I, if I'm not mistaken, what I was reading is, is like there were, there were some casualties from like sharpshooters and just like good marksmen and stuff. But the main bulk of um, the casualties in this was from artillery because the Brit, the Americans are basically just pummeling the British with artillery the entire time. Um, and it was decided by the British. I don't remember exactly why, um, but you can actually go to the battlefield and see this place where this happened. But the Americans are behind their embankments, basically shooting at the British. The British are basically marching across what looks like an open field. It's like an open grassy field. I don't know what it looked like at the era, but it's basically now a grassy field they're walking across. And at some point, someone made the idea, someone had the great idea on the British side to basically like march and then go left and kind of come at them like at a diagonal. And so that just opens you up to like even more like- (laughs) That was the 93rd actually. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they just get completely, completely decimated. Um, And and and, the answer is a sugar, it's a sugar cane. It had already been harvested. So oh, it, was, okay. it wasn't necessarily grassy, but it's kind of the same idea, right? And and so they were marching across a pretty manicured lawn, so to speak. Yeah, no cover at all. And, and it's none, and, none at and all. if you go there, it's, it's it's flat. There's no like hills or anything where the British were as far as I could see. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so when it says that they're running through the briars and the brambles and all the places a rabbit couldn't go. I think an, I think an, a lesser man would have done that. I would have done that, right? A lesser yeah. lesser lesser soldiers would have done that. The British did not, despite having basically having their rear ends handed to them in this battle. And no offense to our yeah. British friends, but that's just what happened, you know. Yeah. Well, um, well, compliments to our British friends. Yeah. I mean that. I mean that. That's actually. Uh, I mean, it takes a lot of guts um, to to do that. So. Right. More guts than I have. That's yeah. For sure. Yes. Um, but, uh, but that, that's pretty much, that's the end of the song. There isn't any more, um, there aren't any more verses after that. There's, it doesn't repeat the chorus the, the, the song kind of ends with like someone kind of counting off a marching beat in the yeah. background. Um, so, and then we're kind of wrapping up towards the end of the episode anyway, but I had a, I had a few, um, fun facts that I always do about this, but, but Scott, I know you've been kind of <laughs> listening in the whole time, but any, any, parting or final thoughts on the song or, or uh, the topic or anything. And then Joe, I'll kick it over to you. Well, I mean, it's, it's been a, it's been a fun ride listening to it. Um, No. And, and yeah, I I think um, that the more I um, am, am talking about it and, and uh, learning from you guys, um, I kind of like the, the departure that the, the and the the uh, artistic liberties they took, um, because earlier Joe, when you when you were when you had a monologue a little bit earlier, talking about how 
that this is kind of where uh, um like the idea of being american like kind of unified us uh, a lot in this in this battle it it kind of makes sense that the artist would use this battle and then pull in other battles like the whites of their eyes pull in um maybe more dramatic retreats from uh, from the enemy um to, to as like a rallying cry to, to to say yeah this is america we beat them where this is what we do um and this is what you can expect um from american troops um from here on out or whatever so so i kind of like the uh the idea of of using this battle even though it's not strictly historically correct using this battle and then parts of other battles to uh to buoy it up and and make it like a a rallying cry so that's kind of my uh what i got out of um the song itself and then the the true history behind it and god bless america right scott yes 100 percent Cool. Joe, any, any, um, any parting thoughts about like the song or, or like this aspect of history? Yeah. Um, one final thought, which is, which is actually like the thing that gets me that, that burns me a little bit when, when I see, because I guess I'm, 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 uh, I'm like that. But when we read about this, we hear that this battle didn't matter. And the idea behind that is that, um, before the battle, the, the final battle, the, the January 8, 1815 battle, the Treaty of Ghent had been signed. Problem is two things. Number one. Well, and the Treaty of Ghent, sorry, Joe, the, the Treaty of Ghent is the treaty <clears throat> between the British and the Americans to end the War of 1812. That's right. That's right. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Um, and and uh, so, so number one, it hadn't been ratified, right? So By Congress. Uh, Right, but in, in either side, neither side had yet signed it. It's the negotiators who had signed it, and then it, it needed to get a stamp of approval from uh, from the whatever the Brits do, uh, heavy stamp seal, I'm guessing. Um, and then in Congress, we had to um, everyone the uh, the Congress had to uh, to ratify it. So um, what's what's important about that and why this burns me so much is because the idea was there was a hey we're gonna cease all hostilities but wherever we currently occupy that we keep and so if the british had been successful in taking new orleans even though the treaty of ghent had been signed this would have stayed British or at least arguably would have stayed British. And so this battle very, very much meant something to the British and it meant something to America. And if we think about it, think about everything West of the Mississippi, which I live in and and you guys too, right? That is a a huge part of of what we consider the United States. In fact, East of the Mississippi, I'm not even sure really counts, but, um, you know, it, that is uh, something that, that gets forgotten, I think, when people are writing quick articles. And, and so that's probably my final piece about uh, the, the historical value of this battle. This battle was crucial and, and it, in so many different ways helped make up what what is America. And, and, and I mean that quite literally. Good thought. And that was actually one of my parting thoughts as well, is that a lot of people like people 
I don't want to say pseudo historians because that's basically what Scott and I are. Um, but, but people that like think they know, you know, a lot of stuff about this battle is like, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that's the funny thing is like, uh, you know, the battle happened and no one told the British, I mean, sorry, sorry. The war ended and no one told the British. So they attacked New Orleans anyway, which is, I guess, half true, but, but you're exactly right. The treaty of Ghent, which is, which is the, the treaty ending this war had been signed by the people in the room, but hadn't been ratified by either government. So the war was not actually over yet. It was in the process of being over but again this is 1815 this this battle happened january 8th of 1815 and stuff is still going by boat right so i had to cross the ocean get to get from ghent to uh you know to the u.s to be ratified so it wasn't until like a month after this battle that the the war was officially over um because there's a couple little skirmishes and stuff that happened after this battle like you said joe um but um, the reason why it's so symbolic is because number one, it solidified the uh, um, the Americans' victory in in not just the the battle, but the the conflict in in general. Um, because it's it's a lot of a lot of historians theorize that if we had lost the Battle of New Orleans, the British would have been even more emboldened to go to the negotiating table at the end of the war and basically demand all this stuff. Right. Because because one thing we haven't talked about at all is the Spanish question in this, because Florida was part of Spanish Florida and the Spanish were the allies of the British in this war. They didn't really get too involved, um, especially in this con in this particular battle. Um, but the idea was like the British and Span the British and Spanish were going to try and like kind of, you know, pick apart some of the choice pieces of of uh, land, you know, in, in these areas for themselves. And if we had lost the Battle of New Orleans, it's thought that the British would be like, well, Here's the thing, America. Look, like we we can we we kicked your butt once. We can do it again. So just give us you know this, that, and the other, and we'll go ahead and we can end your little war of 1812. You know, but because the outcome was what it was, not only was it a victory for us, but like like a like a, a sweeping victory. The British were like, okay, okay, fine, fine. Just you can have Louisiana. You can have all that land. Fine. You know, um, and uh, and yeah. So it was, it was pretty amazing, and and it kind of. It's also, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this was the only land battle that we won in the War of 1812. We had some other victories that were kind of like naval stuff, but as far as like big, big uh, land battle, I think this may have been the only one that we actually won the entire war. Correct me if I'm wrong, Joe. Yeah, no, I think that's right. At, at least against just the British. Right. Yeah, because the, the Indians, we didn't talk about the Indian piece at all, but both sides had their Indian allies that were kind of doing some stuff as well. Um but uh, but yeah, so the only other um, fun fact I was going to share is that after this battle, January 8th was almost like a 4th of July celebration in the U.S. all the way up until the Civil War. People would celebrate, quote unquote, the 8th as like a memorial to this battle and a memorial to, to General Jackson and his men, you know, and um, also as a testament to uh, Jimmy Driftwood, the guy that wrote this song. The tune on the fiddle that's used that he used for this song is literally called the eighth, and it's an old old fiddle tune that that is basically uh, um, from January eighth, meaning like a celebration of the War of eighteen twelve. So he actually took a tune called the eighth, based on on the history of this battle, and wrote a song about the battle to commemorate it in the nineteen thirties. I thought that was kind of cool, little little fun fact there. That's sweet. So, but uh, 
Great, great song, uh, Joe. Even though it wasn't super historically dense, it's definitely something that, like I said, it's near and dear to my heart because I've been to this battlefield. Um, you know, I, yeah. I, I love American history and as, and um, the audience doesn't know, but I was telling you guys beforehand, I've actually, like I said, been to this battlefield, but I've also read a whole book about this one battle. Yeah. And it's it's uh, it's Brian Kilmeade's um, Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans, the battle that- shaped, a good one. Yeah, the battle that shaped America's destiny. So it's good. It's definitely- um, kind of like coffee shop books, you know, so it is pretty easy to pick up and, and read and it's not too yeah. like historically dense. Um, but, but that's, that's kind of what, what the book portrays is like the ragtag aspect of, of general Jackson's army kind of overcoming sure. this like uniform red coat British army, you know? Very and I think that's, that's, a, I think that's a fair characterization. Yeah, you're right. It's very, very inspiring because it's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing we didn't talk about is they, the reason they call it the miracle of new Orleans is because this is my parting thought. I promise um, is, is they call it the, the miracle of new Orleans is because uh, when the British had these 60 ships out in, in uh, you know, Mobile Bay and, and the Gulf of Mexico, they, that's a lot, right? Anyone could see that. And so all the citizens of new Orleans were panic, literally panicking that the British were going to come and, and, you know, rape, pillage, plunder, like every army does. And they were they were extremely worried about that. And so a bunch of nuns went to a convent that's still there now, a Catholic convent mm-hmm. in, in New Orleans, and they prayed to uh Our Lady of Immediate Sucker. I forget what which saint it was, but they basically prayed to her yeah, all right. n- yeah, all night that 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 God would save them from the British. Mm-hmm. And it happened. So because of that, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of like Catholics in the area consider this as like a miracle, right? Like a miracle, like through praying to this saint, because, you know, God or this saint, you know, saved them from the British. Hmm. Kind of interesting. So, um, but uh, so thanks for coming on the show, Joe. We're sorry to keep you up a little past your bedtime, but in the last few minutes that we have, I know you're always, you're, you're a guy who's always working on different projects. So um, what projects are you working on? You know, what can we link in the show notes to kind of, you know, the, the, the floor is yours, man. Um, well, uh, you know, the, the tie-in with this show, of course, is uh, I'm a huge military history fan, a fan, because I'm, I'm not a historian by uh, by te- by credentials. And I know you're, you're anti-credential, uh, but uh, but but I am I'm a hobby historian. And uh, the other connection I with with my father, music and history. This is what I grew up. Uh, we either were listening to music or talking about military history. And I expressed that love of military history through a podcast called Battle Rattle. And so, as probably um, if if you liked the the battle stuff that we talked about, uh, that's probably a great place to find me. I also um, I'm on Twitter. Oh my gosh! I don't even know my Twitter handle. <clears throat> I think it's I think it's your name. I think it's just at Joseph McGregor. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's right. I sh- that's something I probably should have checked out before. Uh, you know, I never I never at me, and yeah. so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll link it. I kind of forgot. Yeah, we, we can. Link I, it in the there show we notes. go. It is Joseph McGregor. I just checked, um, yeah. but uh, but I also have an Instagram, um, you know, a personal one. But I do a lot of photography and. Um, and that's uh, probably probably the only the only other thing. So. I'm so I'm surprised you didn't bring up Ministers of Smoke. So that's one of the. So I have an Instagram account called Ministers of Smoke. Uh, it's a photography project that I've been working on for a couple of years. Um, hope, hopefully, will be a book uh, this next year. And um, 
Yeah, so I I do also love barbecue. So military history and barbecue nice. are the are the things I love. And um, you can find uh, pictures of pitmasters and world of barbecue at that Instagram. So if somebody's randomly into military history and also uh, barbecue, then I've got some stuff for you. You know, oddly Otherwise, enough, I think those I two. Have for you. I think that's pretty common uh, pairing there. Yeah, I hope so because I. <laughs> And we'd be friends if, yeah. if, uh, in, in, in music. Also, I mean, I still I still love music. And so if you Good. like hot water music um, or UGK or George Strait, then we can be great friends. I've actually been listening to a lot of hot water music lately, like their first album. So oh, good. So good. So good. So, so good. Anyway. Um, but so one thing I was going to add, I, I've listened to your podcast because I, I was I was sharing with Scott before the show. Like I remember being at like soccer games, like with you, like four years ago or something where you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking about starting this podcast where I talk about battles. I'm like, I think I'm going to call it, you know, battle rattle or whatever. And so then now it's, it's cool to see that, that, that has, has blossomed. You've actually like, you know, delivered on that, on that promise. Yeah. Um, and, and having listened to your podcast, um, cause it's just you, you know, and, and you kind of yeah. give like the, the background on the battle and like who the players are, what the outcome was, you know, what the results were, why it's important. Um, but I will say this, and I was, I was mentioning this to Scott before the show, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, but a lot of the battles you pick, they're, they're important in their own way, but they're kind of like the deep tracks of history. Like the battle of Mahanagela, what's it called? Mahanagela. Mahanagela. Yeah. Mahanagela. So, yes. Yeah. So, so I know you have a lot of battles like that where it's like, wait, what is this battle? Cause it's not, you're not talking about like the landing at Normandy. I, okay. I, I am purposely steering away from the battles. Like you said, the whole premise is battles, lesser known battles. Right. that had consequence you know monongahela started the first real world war uh you know, the the seven years war interestingly you taught bring this back to battle of new orleans you talked about uh colonel mullins who was the commander of the 44th of foot nowhere, unit, to, be, nowhere but, to be found at the time of the battle <laughs> who who bought his commission by the way the other leaders of the british army in this battle of new orleans um very very experienced and well-regarded Mullins on the other hand purchased this commission didn't have such a great reputation but he commanded the 44th of foot who were the same uh, unit that you know what what is that 40 50 years before uh in the in the Americas they got ambushed one of the other worst disasters of British military history also in the Americas so 44th of foot not a great uh, pedigree there Anyway, yeah. but yeah, that's exactly right. Sorry, Sean, that is a long answer to a, a right. simple point. Uh, <laughs> but but yes, I try to find uh, things that maybe you would not have heard of, uh, and uh, and and that's where because that's what interests me. Uh, sometimes I'm reading a book. I'm like, why, why don't people know this? This is super important. Uh, people, more people should know this. And so uh, the four people who listen to me to my podcast, uh, they uh, now know it. So. So it's, yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, now, are you cool if we, um, cause we usually have like a, like a show description that we put, that we like kind of push out to all the different um, listing services. So are you cool if we link um, like your, your podcast and your, your uh, Twitter handle and maybe your, your Instagram handle? Or are you, are you yeah, cool absolutely. Okay. Please do. Okay. Anything else we should include on there? Any other podcasts or things you're working on? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I think that that covers it. Thanks. That's awesome, man. The opportunity to talk awesome. to you guys. Yeah, awesome. I, I feel I feel very fortunate and lucky to have such smart friends and friends of friends, new friends. It's a 
it this is this is awesome and i love the cross-pollination of of podcasts i think this is uh it's we should take advantage more um so yeah thank you very much for coming on joe um thanks sean as always and uh we will uh have the the song play us on out down the mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans and we caught the bloody British in a town in New Orleans. We fired our guns and the British kept a coming. There wasn't as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more and they began to run it on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. We looked down the river and we see the British come and there must have been a hundred of them beating on the drum. They stepped so high and they made the bugles ring. We stood beside our cotton bales and didn't say a thing. We fired our guns and the British kept a coming. There wasn't as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more and they began to run it on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Old Hickory said we could take them by surprise If we didn't fire muskets till we looked them in the eye We held our fire till we see their faces well Then we opened up our squirrel guns and really gave them well We fired our guns and the British kept them coming There wasn't as many as there was a while ago We fired once more and they began to run it On down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico We grabbed an alligator and we fought another round We filled his head with cannonballs and powdered his behind And when we touched the powder off, the gator lost his mind We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming There wasn't as many as there was a while ago We fired once more and they began to run it On down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico